Well, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you for joining us this morning, here or online. Take your Bibles and turn again to 1 Corinthians, as we've been studying in this book. 1 Corinthians 5 today. It's a shorter chapter, and we're covering all 13 verses of the chapter. Page 926, if you're using our Bibles here. The letter that Paul wrote to this church in the first century, the letter to the Corinthians, is filled with a lot of tough problems. If you don't like tough issues, don't study 1 Corinthians. We've, uh, we've come through the first four chapters where, where Paul is addressing the basic problems of the Corinthian church family. The basic problem in any church or family really is, is pride. That's our, that's our first level of, of sin, I think. It's a core sin of pride. And he's talked a bit about that. And, and that pride had created a disunity, divisions in the church. But this letter was written also to respond to some very specific issues, things that were happening that shouldn't be happening in the Corinthian church. And so starting where we're at today in chapter 5, he begins one by one to like almost check the boxes of the issues he has to talk about specific to that church in Corinth. It's possible, it seems to me, that he, he, he started with the, with the hardest one. This issue is often called church discipline. When you hear the word church combined with the word discipline, it, it, it's kind of alarming to some. It's like, um, it might sound controlling, or, or is this like a cult for a church to in some way feel responsible for discipline? Realize that this step must be uh, hopefully always rare in a church, but it is a necessary biblical final step of accountability in a local church, and accountability is the issue. And so, uh, regardless of how close you would ever feel to this situation, maybe the broader question is, do you feel spiritually accountable to others? Do you have a friend to whom you say, I'm accountable to that person? They, they, would, they would call me on something. Spouse, children, family. Do you feel accountable to the church family? That's what this is about. Do you realize that God has designed the church to be a place of accountability? A, a church is not a, a, uh, a spiritual restaurant where you can go and uh, choose if you want to get some weekly inspiration. Because God designed a church to be a, a family. A family where we are motivating, hopefully, one another towards godliness. But that also means that we'd be accountable when we are straying. From godliness. So Paul tackles a specific situation quite directly, and here's the situation. A man in the church of Corinth was in an, in an, an incestuous relationship, and the church was doing nothing about it. That's the issue. We'll see it right up front. If you take a look at the verse previous, the end of chapter 4, Paul was like, taking a deep breath, getting ready for this. Verse 21, what do you prefer, 
This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a church. What do you prefer? Should I come to you with a rod, or the word may be whip, or in love and a gentle spirit? You can tell his heart there that he would prefer to come in gentleness. Wouldn't we all prefer just to be gentle all the time? But like every parent knows, there's a time for hard talks and firm action. So Paul tells the church how they should handle this situation and and why. Verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Um, this, This relationship was damaging the reputation of the church. It was reported. And Paul, the very first word in in both, um, probably in in English and in in, in the original language, is the word actually. It's like this word, uh, I, I can't believe my ears. I'm appalled at what I hear is taking place and the inaction of the church. It's reported, so people knew it. I mean, Paul is writing this letter many days travel away across the Aegean Sea in the city of Ephesus, and he heard about it. So, uh, now, he likely heard about it when these three men, listed in chapter 16, verse 17, came to tell him the issues, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. So they knew, they told Paul, now Paul knows, the church knows, and if the church knows the reputation of the church, people who know the people of the church would know. There is this sexual immorality. Now that term is the, the term, actually we came across it in Ephesians last week, where it's, it's, a, it's a word in general, porneia, the word for sexual immorality. And really any sexually immoral relationship would merit Paul's attention, but this one is particularly revolting because he says, even among the pagans, or you may have the word Gentiles, this, this is appalling, repulsive. Which is amazing because... The city of Corinth, as we've discussed at times, is a city where prostitution was condoned as a form of worship in the the pagan temples. But they were appalled at this. A man has his father's wife. According to the terminology, this is not his biological mom, but would then be his stepmom. Nothing is said, so we don't know the whole scenario of what's going on with the dad. Are they separated, divorced? Is he deceased? We just know this relationship was going on, and by every standard, Jewish or pagan, that was considered incest. And when it says, he has his father's wife, it's a present tense. This is an ongoing thing, not a, not a one-time thing. And they did nothing. In fact, they had an attitude. They were proud. Proud. Pride's been this base problem. Uh, it was pride that caused them to kind of rally around their, their favorite leader in the early chapters. It, it would be proud, pride that would make some of them defiant about eating meat sacrificed to idols no matter who it influenced. It would be pride, that was chapter, that's chapter 8, it, it would be pride that would cause them to misuse a spiritual gift, uh, the gift of tongues, chapters 11, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14. 
So, so shouldn't you, instead of being proud, have been filled with grief? There should have been a sense of remorse at this violation of the holiness of God. But instead, you, you guys have some kind of a bizarre, perverse view, it seems, of God's grace. As if everything's okay because of grace. They somehow even felt, it seems, spiritually superior for tolerating something like this. Tolerance is not the same as grace. Don't ever confuse them. Uh, tolerance says anything and everything's okay. Grace never condones sin. What God's grace does is it frees us from condemnation so we can address and admit and acknowledge and humble ourselves about our sin. Our world is valuing tolerance. That's, that's a key word, it seems, today. And they are an increasingly tolerating deviant sexuality, so much so they have to have a whole list of letters to say what they say is okay that actually God says is not. And sadly, it seems like the church in Corinth was, was going down that path. So what should they do? Paul tells them very directly what they should do to realign themselves with God's holiness this is the simplest definition of church discipline you can find, really. Put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Put out of your fellowship, uh, put him out literally from among you, because this man, not, not, not the stepmom, that, she must have been out there in the world, but this man is, a, is associated with, identified with you guys as a, as a church, claims to follow Jesus Christ, and yet... He continues in this sexual involvement. This can't be ignored, so put him out of the fellowship. And whatever that means, whatever it meant then, I'm sure it's looked different in different settings the last 2,000 years since this was written, but it seems to require some kind of official action of the church, something where there is a relational break of fellowship, something that involves disassociating socially because they've been associated. Would this be done in a little private uh, you know, conversation behind closed doors so everybody can save face? No. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Even though I'm not physically present, he's in Ephesus, I'm with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature, or flesh, may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Wow. Whatever it is, that's hard. That's That's awkward. No one really wants to do this. But the point is not to destroy this man with humiliation, but to restore him spiritually. Because the point of church discipline is, first of all, for the benefit of the one who is caught in sin. Just as every good parent disciplines not to destroy the child, but in anticipation that there would be a transformation, a change, and a restoration of, of fellowship and relationship. I have already passed judgment, Paul says. So there is no uncertainty on his part. 
He's an apostle. He knows exactly what to do. There are three phrases that describe who will be present. First of all, Paul says, I'll be with you in spirit. Paul's authority is present. Secondly, it says in verse 4, it's when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is, this is public. This, this, this final step of discipline is, is a public thing. And in the church family, this doesn't mean it's in the local newspaper. So Paul's present. You guys are assembled. And three, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. That's what makes this a big deal. Because Jesus Christ is present every time the people of Jesus Christ gather to worship. This is a, this is a truth we often neglect to grasp. That as we gather, Jesus Christ is here right now. Um, that, that's why I need to teach this passage. That, that's why I couldn't skip and say, let's just go to chapter 6. <laughs> because we are obligated to preach the whole counsel of God. And we're accountable to Him first. So, you, you, many of you have probably heard that phrase of Jesus Himself when He says, where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in the midst, right? That's a warm thought if we're thinking of fellowship and worship and and people we enjoy. But do you know the setting that that statement was made by Jesus? Is in Matthew 18, the other key passage of church discipline. Where he said, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. And we'll go there in, in, a, in a little bit. But verse 2 says, put out of your fellowship. That's kind of like the, that's like the physical disassociation, official physical act of the church. Verse 5 is describing the same thing, only it's describing the physical, or rather the spiritual action. Hand this man over to Satan? What in the world could that mean? Don't complicate it or assume the worst. This obviously cannot mean that the church somehow is able to change his eternal status, that now he's not going to heaven. This is not about losing salvation. This is just a blunt way of saying the man has chosen to live in and according to the world that Satan rules, where he's proliferating sin. He's chosen to do that. You have to let him go. And you have to make a break so that he must decide between Satan's world or the church fellowship. The intent would be that he, it would prompt a spiritual repentance and he would want to come back to the fellowship of the church because you've forced him to choose. But he can't have it both ways. He can't come into the worship service and, and enjoy this time together and all the fellowship and all the good relationships that, that he's known and then go out and continue to persist in, in the lifestyle sexually that he's been involved in and say everything's okay and I don't want anybody to tell me any different. The purpose is so that his flesh or sinful nature would be destroyed and his spirit saved. In other words, that this separation where he's forced to choose would say, you know what? I value the church fellowship too much. And, and so I am going to, I'm going to put to death this area of sin in my life. Be, that it would be destroyed, like Paul said, put it to death. So that his spirit, little less, so that spiritually he could be, it says saved, rescued. 
See, the word saved is always in a context. If it's talking about whether you're going to be eternally in heaven or hell, it's talking about that kind of salvation. This isn't that. This is talking about a, a rescue spiritually that would happen between now and when. What does it say? On the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, like a specific term for when Jesus comes back. Much like the day of chapter 3, verse 13, where, where we're going to be, uh, God's going to evaluate us, Christ is going to evaluate us for reward on the day. So, so we're trying to give him, he says, a spiritual wake-up call. That's the redeeming value of this, so that he would see that there are, there are spiritual, there are logical, there are perhaps physical consequences if he continues in this lifestyle because we want him to be rescued so that he could live again a profitable, godly, holy life. So it's the best thing that the church can do in order to benefit him personally. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. There's a reality to the anticipation that Jesus will return and he can return at any moment. And this man is not spiritually ready. Good warning for us all, right? Because if he does not respond to the church's effort to hold him accountable, he needs to know there will be an accountable day when Jesus comes back. So we hopefully pay attention to the action of the church because Jesus is already present when the church takes that action. But keep, keep a bulletin or something here and come with me to, to Matthew chapter 18, this other passage where Jesus himself describes this proce the process of church discipline. The, uh, the situation in Matthew is, is not sexual immorality. It's actually conflict between two Christians, a relational issue. And in fact, we may well come back to this Matthew passage again next week when, when we're in chapter 6 next week because we're, it's about Christians in conflict. But the, the process is what is clarified by Jesus when he describes church discipline. So we just have to change the setting from, from, from two Christians who are having difficulty in, in reconciling to this case of immorality. Verse 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Uh, in a, if somebody sins against you, what do you do? You go and tell your best friend, right? No. It says go and talk to them directly. And then you want to work it out. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. But you want that to be restored. And so that, that relational thing between you is settled. And nobody has to know except the two of you, right? That's, that's actually the very best scenario. And in a similar way, the first step of Approaching the man of 1 Corinthians 5 would be that somebody approached him, someone who is, is, has a godly mindset would approach him and say, you can't do that. You are a believer in Christ, and you cannot live in that unholy lifestyle. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 alludes to a previous letter that Paul had written about this, so maybe that's all happened. It, it should have happened. It should have been the first step Maybe Paul's writing and saying, you guys never didn't handle this, so now I have to. But the first step is that somebody goes individually. The point is never to publicly humiliate anyone. The point is to see 
private repentance. Um, that's a blessing when that happens. Secondly, if they refuse to hear you, verse 16, but if you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So is, if they deny it or say, no, I'm not changing, is the sin verifiable uh, by Jewish standards? Two or three witnesses were required. Jesus seems to uphold that standard. Modern courts basically uphold that standard today, that they don't want just one witness saying that something did or didn't happen. They, they want a couple of uh, 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 independent witnesses to verify truth. And what if they still deny it? Because there will be every temptation to deny something that is of a, such a serious nature that the church would be willing to get involved because it's affecting the impact of Christ and the church in the community. So there's a tendency to dig in your heels and say, first of all, to say a lie, no, I'm not doing that, or B, I'm doing it, but I'm not stopping. Because we have a stubborn will, don't we? Pride takes us deeper and deeper sometimes. So what do you do then? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So the, the stakes are ratcheted up because they care so much about the spiritual state of this man that he'll be ready when Jesus comes back. The church gets involved. I assume it'd be elders who would or should be involved in this. Uh, the handful of times where we at Open Door have needed to go to this step. It's difficult. It's awkward. Um, if someone, though, refuses to admit the sin or to turn from the sin, it's been verified, there is no repentance, then elders must bring it before the church family. It says here that this being put out of the fellowship says... Jesus describes it as, let, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's an interesting uh, cultural illustration of what that would look like in the first century. Uh, he's drawing on the fact that Jews simply did not fellowship with Gentiles. Okay? They, they, didn't, they had such a different lifestyle, what they could eat, what they couldn't. They didn't fellowship. Um, it was a non-socialization understanding Tax collectors, sorry if anybody works for the IRS, you're probably fine. But tax collectors were known to be corrupt, lining their own pockets. And so people just avoid, avoided them. So what would this mean? It'd mean that he's telling the Corinthian church, you know, if you, if you used to, you know, after church, you go have dinner at the market. No. Your family's always celebrated birthdays together. That would change. Having... Um, as long as that person is continuing in that sin. And so having defined these steps, Jesus tells the disciples uh, in verses 18 to 20 that what they do in the church is actually being done in heaven. That's how profound the presence of Christ is when we gather. I tell you the truth, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, bound. In other words, church business becomes heaven's business when it's done in obedience to Christ to maintain the holiness of the body. 
So if the church enacts discipline or releases and restores the person, that's a divine, heavenly interaction and decision and business. So why is that? Verse 19 to 20. I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. This is the context of that. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. I'm present. Not just when you enjoy worship, but when you must deal corporately with sin. And so these are the steps that as a church, we have sought to apply when necessary. The intent is always that it could be that, that some issue of sin that could become seriously impacting, it seems, the gospel. That the person would be approached directly, personally, and, 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 and the good news is, not, is that not every case of serious sin becomes public because of repentance. That's great. But if there's denial, there's no change, then we've attempted to go with another individual so that there's not just one elder or pastor having this conversation. Uh, in some cases in our culture, it's not, you know, the door stays closed. We don't respond. We, we've had to write a letter and give them some time to respond because the desire is that they would respond. And if there's no response, we've sadly had to bring it a the attention of the church membership, and uh, we do that at a, at, a, at a congregational meeting when the members gather. Gratefully, it's been very rare. So who does this apply to? Where, where's the line? Over the years, we've decided that church membership is the criteria, uh, the line in the sand for this level of accountability. Uh, I don't know if they had membership lists in the first century or what that looks like, looked like. I just know that sometimes we have people that attend the church just for a brief season. Sometimes there are church people who, who would definitely call this their church, but they're only in church a handful of times. Uh, there are people who are maybe attending regularly, very involved, but they're not members, and so we've decided that uh, Open Door will take this step of accountability for members only because we take membership seriously. Though membership is not uh, technically a biblical concept, uh, they would know in Corinth that this guy needed to be addressed, not the stepmom. He's a part of us, she is not. And so there has to be some way that we determine who's a part of us officially. And so in our, in our welcome class, when we go through the church constitution, uh, we, need to talk, we talk about this issue, we talk about these passages, uh, because someone who joins officially is saying, I want this level of accountability. Because what you're saying is, I understand that, that Christ is with us when we gather. I understand the sacred nature of the church family. I understand that if I, I, I'm, I'm giving spoken verbal permission that if I ever fall into sin that would impact, that, that, that the church would determine is, is impacting the church, not even just myself, or that is putting me in serious jeopardy, they would approach me. So it's heavy stuff. And... Uh, Yet if we take the Bible seriously, we can't pick our favorite parts. Come back with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus uh, says here the goal is to win your brother back, right? And likewise, that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says it's for the salvation. The spirit would be saved. The, the rescue, the restoration would take place. 
It benefits the individual by rescuing from that serious sin. But verses 6 through 8 tell us it also benefits the church. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Why? For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So your boasting about tolerance isn't good. Doing nothing is not good. Instead, don't you realize that, that what you guys have allowed is like yeast permeating the whole batch of dough. If you've been around bed breaking, bread baking, I've only been around it, never done it. You know that the only way that your bread becomes soft and, and fluffy and so good is because of yeast. Otherwise, it'd be basically like a, a cracker. So yeast is added to the dough and mixed in, and it causes the whole batch to rise, and that's when you bake it. That's a very good thing for bread lovers. It's not a good thing when leaven is an illustration of sin, because the yeast will affect the whole batch of dough, and in Old Testament symbolism, yeast was an illustration of sin. In fact, they had a feast of unleavened bread connected with the Passover and commemorating the, the way God delivered Israel from Egypt. And then, then God said, now I want you to commemorate this every year. So I want you to make unleavened bread. Just like when you left Egypt, you, you were in such a hurry, you didn't have time for the dough to rise. <clears throat> I want you to, to go into your houses and before you bake this special bread once a year, you need to get all the yeast out. It's a symbolism of purity. Get rid of it because it'll permeate. Sin will permeate you. So if you're preparing to worship, you have to prepare your heart. I hope that's actually a process we would go through prior to a weekend. So I'm going to come and worship, so I've got to prepare my heart. Worship requires that. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So we're seeking to come together to honor Christ the one who, who paid for all of our sins so that we might be holy, so we have to address our sins. So <clears throat> Paul is using the yeast illustration to say you can't ignore serious sin. It'll impact the whole church family. And what happens is that the seriousness of one person's sin at Open Door can become the reputation of Open Door and the gospel for someone who basically just knows that person. It's like, oh, they live just like the world. It's no big deal. I thought they were different. We need to be different. Get rid of the old yeast. Verse 8, Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So a church has to decide, will we, will we pursue sincerity and truth, or will we tolerate malice and wickedness? And, and again, it's not completely defined by that. There's more examples in a moment, but sincerity and truth. Sincerity is basically pure motives. We want to be godly. And, and, and the truth issue is probably even more than just do you tell the truth, but are we, the word can mean faithful. 
in sincerity and faithfulness. Are we, are we faithful people? Are we reliable people? You know people in your life that you can trust them to live out their Christian character. You expect them to do the right thing. And when they don't do the right thing, they are, they are eager to, to apologize and make it right. Because they're trustworthy. You know that. So in, compared to the malice and the wickedness. Which can include anything, but obviously includes this immoral relationship. This does not mean a church is somehow sinless. We all get that. We all sin in many ways. Love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that good? And, uh, but there are times where the, the impact, the, the spread, the danger must be addressed. Get rid of it. Now, this idea of disassociating somehow raises some practical questions, right? What do we do? Do we, do we you know... So, so if somebody comes in the door, visits the church, do we need to like have a checkpoint? You know, are you good enough to worship with us? Obviously not. Do we, do we need to have appoint spiritual fruit inspectors to get involved in everybody's business, private? No. No, Paul clarifies very clearly. This is insider business, those who clearly identify as part of the church. Verse 9. I've written you in my letter, there's a previous letter, not inspired, but something else he wrote, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I told you this, but it's been misunderstood, evidently. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. <laughs> a little bit of a, almost humor there. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. That's pretty specific. Some had misapplied this saying, well, I just can't be out there in the world anymore. No, you have to leave the world. That's silly. That's absurd. You couldn't go to the market. You couldn't work in the fields. If you couldn't associate with anybody that's immoral, you, you, many of you could not go to work tomorrow. I could. <laughs> but you maybe couldn't. You notice how broad it is. Things like, wow, greed? Never actually disciplined for greed. Slander? Drunkard? Swindler? Hmm. Reputation-killing behavior on the sake of the church. But they call themselves a brother. It's even like Paul knows that I can't for sure know who's put their faith in Christ, but this guy claims to have. He associates himself as part of the church. And I, I, I would assume, and I think Paul was assuming he would be under that, be under that category of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, of a carnal Christian. In other words, he is a believer in Christ, headed towards heaven, but he's actually living according to the flesh. And that's a reality, people. For all of us. It's only a matter of degree, but carnal Christians is not a contradiction. It, it is a contradiction in the way we should be, but it's not a contradiction of what we experience in real life. So he calls himself a brother, but he can't have it both ways because of the serious nature of this sin as determined by, in this case, an apostle, otherwise by perhaps a church family. But you can't just have these close relationships and come and worship and, and they're still your best friend. And Christians make really good friends many times, right? So they have to decide. Do not eat. More practical questions. If, 
If you know someone that's under church discipline and you meet them, gas station, grocery aisle, do you say hi? Or do you duck into the next aisle? <laughs> Avoid them. It didn't say that, but you shouldn't have dinner like you used to. The barbecues. I would suggest being as friendly as possible. But brief, and say something like this. I really miss your fellowship at church. And, and whatever it takes, I hope you would do whatever it takes to be restored to the fellowship of the church. We really miss you. And go on your way. Another question practically arises is, does this apply to immediate family? Uh, Paul doesn't say, but obviously if one individual is being uh, under this kind of church discipline in a family, you still have to relate in the family. So it, it seems to be that this applies to church family, not immediate family, and not that it's easy to discern, but if things were easy to discern, you wouldn't need the Word or prayer or the Holy Spirit. And so we'll need that. Paul wraps up the subject, verses 12 and 13, by clarifying what a church is responsible and what it is not. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So the church's business is to discern these situations. God's business is to judge unbelievers. Probably a good general uh, understanding for a church, a church focus. It can, it can become very easy. It, it's like easy target to judge the sin out there in the world, right? So you probably should be focusing on the mirror of, of becoming holy as a church. This is obviously a challenging issue. It's an awkward issue to carry out, but it's essential for the spiritual best of an individual who is caught in serious sin as well as for the church family of which he is a part. So are you ready for maybe some good news scripturally? It's very possible this man repented. Very possible. Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians, as you know, six months to a year later, and he's referring to someone who was under discipline who is restored. It could be this guy. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. The failure to forgive is a major strategy of Satan. You must forgive. Bible students can discuss if this was or was not the same man, but if it wasn't, it was somebody similarly disciplined, and they were to give this man grace. If it was this guy, could, could you trust his sincerity? Would you forgive? Paul declared him sincere and urged the church to forgive. Why is it so crucial to forgive? What does it say? Satan might not be able to get 
you or me to do the things that create this process that ends in church discipline. But he can win if we just fail to forgive someone. It seems like a major strategy if we just hold bitterness. He gets us that way with an unforgiving attitude. But I'd like to think that all around for the church in Corinth that this, that this resulted in a win. A win for church discipline, but really a, a win for God's word, a win for God's holiness and for the reputation of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be an accountable church. It's possible that, as we've discussed this today, that this doesn't seem particularly relevant to you because you're not uh, living close to any such line. Uh, it's possible that uh, you know that you'd never quite be involved in any of these discussions in the, in the process. So, in closing, if we could just kind of broaden the application to this. Do you desire spiritual accountability? You're going to make all your own decisions. Live by your own standards. I know when I'm right and when I'm wrong. Do you see the pride in that? Have you given anybody verbal permission to speak into your life? Verbal, saying, please, tell me what you see in my life. It doesn't have to be something of this nature, but just, I want you to speak into my life. Is there something you're hiding right now? Hidden sin grows like yeast. It, it doesn't just stay. Honest confession is the path to purity, path to spiritual growth. So that even apart from any church action, just spiritual accountability, is that a principle for you? I would urge you to choose accountability in, in two senses, for sure. Accountability to God is primary. That's, that's daily. First John tells us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. What does the light mean? In other words, that we are before God saying, God, just search me. This is, why, this is why we need to be in the word of God every day. And pray honestly, God, show me attitude, show me myself. The verse continues, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship, us and God. Otherwise, we're kind of distant from God, right? Another term for walking in the light is two verses later, if we confess our sins, that's what walking in the light is, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. Why? Because he already paid for our sins in the cross. And this is not talking about forgiveness that gets us to heaven. This is about forgiveness that keeps us in close fellowship with Christ. And he'll forgive because he took care of it at the cross. And then there is the rebuke of God that we sometimes experience. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. The illustration in this important passage is, of course, parents, the re you only discipline your own kids because you only love your own kids well enough to discipline them. <laughs> you don't want to bother with everybody else's kids. The Lord loves those he disciplines. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. He is the perfect parent. So if you're experiencing something in your life, you say, you know, this was, a, this was something that I have created for myself. You lean into it and say, Lord, I accept that discipline. I am learning from that discipline because I know you're doing it for my good. You've exposed it. I've felt some consequences, but I want to be holy like you.
And when we live that way, it's not strange to have accountability with others. James said, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. That's not to be absolved of those sins. That's to be accountable to somebody. Be transparent about personal sin struggles. Is there somebody you can be transparent with who would pray for you? You can be honest. They're not, they're not judging you. They care about you. They're going to help you. They're going to speak to you. That's not judgment. That's just saying, hey, you got to deal with this and rebuke. Fascinating, read this as we started our service. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, and sin is so catchy, isn't it? It just entangles you, it grabs you, you're drawn to repeat sins. If you're caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. This is apart from official church action, it's because you care about somebody. So are you willing to give careful rebuke? And are you willing to receive it. The word rebuke there, and maybe that's the reason for the way it's describing being caught in sin. In the, in, the, uh, in the first century, that Greek term was used for things like mending broken bones and mending fishing nets. You, you're careful. It's tedious work to set a bone. That's why you don't do it. You go to the doctor, right? And if you if you've got a, a net problem or a fishing line, you don't just Get angry at it and just rip at it because it's just going to get worse. So it's a careful process. But somebody is caught in the sin, and so you, you're careful, you're gracious, you're gentle as possible. You can be gentle and firm at the same time. Or do we care enough to confront? Do we care enough about the holiness that we will receive someone who speaks into our life? There's always grace for sin. But the issue is that God's holiness matters. And so the church must be accountable because Jesus is coming back and he values. He values above all else his holiness to be pursued and upheld. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so far short of holy and yet you forgive and forgive and forgive and you, you see our process of, of struggle and, uh, and hopefully growth and, and, and sanctification. Give us, Lord, a, a transparency first with you, a transparency then that is, is not defensive with others who care about us. And then that we would be faithful to those around us, that we would draw close that we wouldn't isolate ourselves so that we would not be accountable, but that we would hear when others speak into our lives. Lord, we pray that we would uphold your holiness. I pray that Open Door would maintain uh, to the best of our uh, uh, ability in a, in a difficult, awkward, and sometimes confusing world, uh, Lord, that we would be faithful to pursue your holiness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.